You're listening to the official South Bay Church podcast. For more about us, please visit southbaychurch.us. Good morning, South Bay. Let me turn my mic on. I forgot to do that. How about now? Am I on now? Check. Boom. Got it. How's everybody doing here? It's good to be here. Um, I've had a, a mantra on this speaking tour I've been on. I didn't intend for it. It's just kind of arisen. It's not a mantra I've made up. It's in the Bible. But it's become like a, a prayer. Because uh, I'm not sure I'll make it through the book tour on my own strength. I won't make it on the book tour on my own strength. I actually do know. I won't. Um, so I, there's this prayer, and I just keep saying, act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. Uh, I say that because I was preparing for this message a couple weeks ago, and I feel like Jesus and I had a pretty decent, clear conversation about the message. It's like, do I prepare slides? And there are some things I could put up on the slides, and I, I don't even have notes today. Like, Jesus just, we just, and that doesn't mean that my message will be perfect today. Please listen to it with a whole bunch of discernment. Does that make sense? But I feel like, I feel like I'm right where I'm supposed to be this morning. But I say all of that because this morning's message is not a gotcha message. Okay? This is not, I, I, this is not, I, I am not a shock jock. Okay? I don't show up to like, that's not what this message is going to be today. I do believe that sermons should be meaningful. Amen. I do believe they should speak. Like, I, I believe the word of God should inform the context in which we find ourselves, the struggles in which we live. I feel like sermons should be meaningful. And that's what I asked Jesus for, and I don't even know if I heard him correctly, because I know you know what that's like. Anybody know what I'm talking about? <laughs> you feel like Jesus is talking to you, and, and honestly, at the end of the day, we don't know. Nobody can ever stand up here and say, I have the message that Jesus has told me to give. I'm doing my best. Just like anybody else that's ever stood up here and ever said anything or ever will. It's just, it is the way it is. So I don't know. I got a timer going. I'm 28 seconds in. I feel like I've been talking longer than that, but that's what the timer says. I'm just looking at the screen. Um, I'm going to go to Genesis. I'm going to go to Genesis 38. That's where we're going to go today. No notes, no slides. So if you want to make notes, there will be a point where probably notes are going to be really helpful at some point, I, I hope. <laughs> Genesis 38 is the middle of the story of Joseph. Joseph is the end of the book of Genesis. It's literally the longest story outside of, um, Mo well, I'm trying to remember how you slice and dice this. It depends on what you count for the story of Moses, and it depends on how you count the story of David, but Joseph is the longest story of any single character in the scriptures. It covers a huge portion of Genesis. And it's the story of Joseph. You know the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph isn't even about Joseph. Joseph is not the hero of the story of Joseph. The story of Joseph is about Judah. And it's one of the greatest lessons I've learned over the last 10 years of study, mainly from voices like Rabbi David Foreman. A lot of you have heard me talk about him from a Jewish perspective. 
But then you trace it all the way through Jesus in the New Testament. Judah is the hero of the Joseph story. And I want to I look at that today. Because I think there's something for all of us to learn. Now here's what I, I, I almost forgot this. And this is important. There's, there's, there's a, probably a million things you could do with the message today. There are three things that, that come to my mind that you could do. Well, maybe four. That's a very Jewish thing. Three, then four. <laughs> the fourth is you could just ignore it. And, and there's three other things that you could do. There's probably a whole bunch of others. There's two that would be good, helpful things to let this message do. And a third one that I would encourage you to stay away from. The first one is that there might be something in this message for you to like be shaped by, confronted with, consider. Let the Spirit transform you. Forget about Marty and Baymon, all that stupid stuff in a book. Like, forget all that. The Holy Spirit. Like, that would be one thing. The other thing is that maybe this message will, like, encourage you, give some shape and some affirmation to things that you have felt like. I feel like one of the biggest things that gets said to me everywhere I go is it's like, you're saying things that I've felt for years. And maybe the sermon will be some of that today. The one thing I would encourage you not to do with this message is to make it about somebody else. Okay? Probably not typically a good idea about any message, by the way. Like, it would probably not be a great idea to take any sermon and make it about, yeah. Like, A, let it change your heart. B, let it encourage you and, like, carry you bind you up on eagle's wings, God might say, but don't ever weaponize a message. Does that make sense? I say that because I want to act justly, but I also want to love mercy. And in it all, I better be walking humbly. So let's go into a very, very tricky passage. Because in the middle of this Joseph story, we take a detour to a story about Judah. Because the story isn't really about Joseph. It's about Judah. It's weird, right? You're reading the story, and Genesis 37, Joseph gets sold into Egypt by the brothers. Whose, jo- who's, whose idea is it to sell Joseph, by the way? Somebody's actual idea. It tells us whose idea it is. It's Judah's. So the story starts with Judah coming up with this great idea. Let's sell Joseph to Egypt. And, and the next chapter should be Joseph makes it to Egypt and is in Potiphar's house. That should be Genesis 38, but it's not. Genesis 38 is all of a sudden this weird story about, like it feels like a story that's completely irrelevant. We take a massive right turn detour into the life of Judah for a chapter, and then we will go back to the story of Joseph and be there through the rest of, what is the Bible doing? Did the Bible just forget? We pause this regularly scheduled broadcasting to bring you a commercial break about the story of Judah. This has to to be central and critical to what's going on in the Joseph story. So here's the story. At that time, Judah left his brothers and went down to stay with a man of Adullam named Hira. There, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. He married her and made love to her, and she became pregnant. And gave birth to a son who was named Ur. I submit to you, all of you who may be with child, the name Ur. 
she conceived again and gave birth to a son and named him Onan. I have met an Onan before, so no shade thrown towards the Onans in the crowd. She gave birth to still another son and named him Shelah. It was at Kazib that she gave birth to him. Judah got a wife for Ur, who was the firstborn. That would be exactly what you would do in this culture. His firstborn, and and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight. We're not told why, or what, or who, or how. We're just told in the story that Ur was wicked. So the Lord put him to death. We could speculate, but that would do us no good because that's not in the text. So we keep reading. Then Judah said to Onan, sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Now let's pause because that's weird. (laughs) That is in their culture what's called Leverite marriage. So in the ancient Hebrew culture, if you are a widow, two things have just happened. If you're a widow without children, by your husband you are now widowed from. Two things have happened. Number one, your husband's name is gone. There were no offspring to carry on his legacy, his name, his identity. The second thing that's happened is you're now a widow. You are in an ancient patriarchal world. Remember this is some 4,000 years ago, right? In an ancient world, you as a woman widower are now a woman widow. You are now probably not at the top of the list of people that are looking for wives. Not only this, but there are cultural stigmas. Maybe somebody could relate to this. There's cultural assumptions, stereotypes that come with what happened. Her husband died and she didn't have kids. God must not be for her. So Leverite marriage was an act of justice. It doesn't feel that way to us, and I'm not suggesting it should, but you need to hear Leverite marriage. Like later in Torah, Torah doesn't exist yet. This is just Genesis. But later in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, God's literally going to make this Torah law. Take care of people is the law behind this. Make sure that you're looking out for those that might lose dignity. Making sure you're looking out for those that might be victimized by everything from stereotypes to culture, who might be forced to the fringes. This is why prostitution was such a big deal in the biblical world. You can't go get a job as a barista at Starbucks in this world. What do you do when all of a sudden in a patriarchal world, there's nobody to put food on the table, no sons to carry on? This is the situation you find yourself in. So the act of justice, you have to talk about it for a little bit because it's weird to us, and it should be weird to us. Does that make sense? Please don't hear me saying like we should all go back to love right marriage. That would be weird in today's world. That's not the point. But in their world, it was an act of justice. Take care of your brother and his widow. And make sure that he has a name and she has dignity. So, that's what he does. Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. Remember, Torah doesn't exist yet. Judah's doing this because Judah understands this is basic decency. 
but Onan knew that the child would not be his. Whose child would it be? His dead brother's. He didn't want to have to feed and care for and father and parent a child who wasn't even legally his. So whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. We'll read that real quickly. (laughs) But here's the next verse. Listen to this. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death as well. There was an act of justice. Act justly. And this person refused to act justly. And God says, because he sees this widow. And he says, oh no. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law, Tamar, because he has how many sons? Three, two of them are dead. The other one is so young, he's not ready to marry yet. Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought, we're told what Judah's thinking, he may die too, just like his brothers. Judah bought into the stereotype. Judah started with this like act of justice and then bought into this stigma. This This gal must be bad luck. She must be carrying the curse of God. I don't want to lose a third son. That would be all my children. And you can, I mean, you can, let's just be human beings for a moment. You can relate. If we can't relate to that, then we have no business wrestling with these texts. It's still the call to act justly, but you can see where his head is. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, The daughter of Shua died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira, the Adulamite, went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that, although Shelah had not grown up, she had not been, excuse me, For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. So she saw that the justice was not coming. So she took matters into her own hands. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give? She wants some collateral. Makes sense. He says, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord, the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, she took off her veil, put on her widow's clothes again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend, the Adulamite, in order to get his pledge back from the woman. But he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who is beside the road at Anaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or we will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. 
About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law Tamar is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. He doesn't know at this point. He just got the report. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. See if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are, which, by the way, is the exact same Hebrew phrase that Judah and the brothers used when they took Joseph's bloody coat back to his father. You see, Judah has a story like every single one of us have a story. Every single one of us hearing my voice. We all have stories, correct? We all have stories. Judah has a story. Judah has a history of treating people like commodities. His brother. Judah has a history of treating his brother like a literal commodity. He sold him to Egypt. Covered it up with this lie. See, Father, if you recognize whose garments these are. And Jacob said, it's my son Joseph. Now that phrase has caught back up to him. Anybody been there before? Where your story catches you. Not because you're this evil person. Your story just catches you. And she says, see if you recognize whose things these are. I wonder if he heard it. I wonder if he heard those words and they stung. I don't know. Maybe he didn't hear them at all. We're invited to hear them. We're invited to remember this is who Judah is. This is the story that Judah has. This is the stuff that Judah brings with him. Judah did recognize them. And one of the most, one of the craziest verses in all of Torah. Consider where Judah's at right now. Consider where he's at. All the, he's at the top of the power pyramid. Right? He's at the top of the power pyramid. He has every ability to just burn her to death, brush this under the rug, keep on moving. Right? He, he could, hold on. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. There was no, (laughs) there was no, there's not a verse in there that's like, of course you shouldn't have dressed like a prostitute and there was no gaslighting in this verse. And this has nothing to do with 2023 wokeness. This is 4,000 stinking years ago. And he just, he goes, this was me. And the next chapter, where is he? Back with the family. And and you know who's going to keep showing up in the story. No longer a leader. No longer the head of whatever group of people at, where was it? Uh, Adulam at a place called Kazib. No longer the guy in charge of the community that everybody comes. He goes back to his family. I I wonder if he left his family. Kind of that, I struggled with narcissism as a young, I still struggle with narcissistic tendencies today. It's a part of who I am and what I will, that's my addiction. That's why I spend regular time in therapy. Because I will be a very dangerous leader the moment I stop having people talk to me about my dangerous tendencies. Right? 
So I, I, I picture Jacob, excuse me, J- Judah coming out of his family like, oh, I can't believe they're upset at me about like selling the brother, selling the dreamer. Like I picture him like going off on his own. I'm going to do my own thing. Prodigal son, right? He, leave, he left his father's household. He left his father's household and is at Kazib, building his own family and his own stuff. After this story, he's back with the family. That's weird. Did he go back to his family and kind of like resubmit himself to this larger story after trying to build his own thing? And now he's like, I, well, that didn't work. And you know what you find every single time you find Judah? Because he's going to show up a few more times in the story. And every time he shows up, you know what he's doing? He's putting his own life on the line to save somebody else. The, the dude is a changed man. He's not in charge of anything anymore. He's just, he's just showing up going, you know, what this, you know what this story needs? Somebody willing to lay down themselves for somebody else. And it will be Judah that goes to his father and says, Father, you have to let us take Benjamin. The rest of the brothers will never survive if you don't let us take Benjamin. Because Reuben already tried. Do you remember Reuben? Reuben showed up to his dad and was like, just let us take Benjamin. If I don't bring back Benjamin, you can have both of my sons. To which Jacob was like, "Uh, you don't get it. Judah comes up three paragraphs later and says, you have to let us take Benjamin. And if I don't bring him back, I will stake my own life. And he means it because he gets down to Egypt and he stakes his own life for Benjamin and his brothers. And he says, you can, you can put me in a dungeon, but you cannot. Do you remember him standing before Joseph saying, you cannot leave a brother here because it will kill my father. Judah doesn't care about himself anymore. He's a different person. He's now laying down his life for all of these other family members that he left in Genesis 38. Now he's back and he's helping them and he's laying down his life to help them. And you remember, it's that moment that makes Joseph lose it. Do you remember? It's when Judah's like, you can't. It will kill my father. My father will literally die in grief. He's already lost one son. This is the son that is his favorite. His heart is all bound up in his. Which, if you're listening to that, you're like, well, that's not right. A father shouldn't have favorites. Judah doesn't even care. He's done with all that. Because he's seen the danger of living in those spaces. And so he just comes forward, he just says, listen, I, that is who my dad loves. And you got to, will, I will give my own life in essence. That's a paraphrase. You wrestle with whether or not you see that in the text. I will give my own life here in Egypt. If you, you cannot, you cannot leave him here. And it says that Joseph goes and steps away into a side room and weeps his eyes out. And comes back and says, do you know who I am? And the whole family is restored, not because of Joseph's willingness to forgive, but because of a model of Judah who knows what it is to own his stuff and to be a different person. It's Judah's repentance that enables Joseph's forgiveness. It's Judah's repentance that enables, and you know who Judah will be, who will Judah be? Not Judah, Judah, because Judah's life, he lays down his, Judah will never, Judah, Judah, like the dude named Judah, will never be anybody for the, like anybody of particular significance for the rest of the story. 
His dad sees it. I didn't intend to preach on this. Hold on. His dad sees it. Do you want to hear what his dad says? I just memorized this with my son last week. This is what, this is what Jacob says on his deathbed. He's literally having to muster strength in the middle of this conversation because he's at the end of his life and he doesn't have enough strength to get all of this out for 12 sons, which is a lot, by the way. But he eventually says, he says, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he who be- to whom it belongs shall come, and the obedience of the nations shall be his. Well, I got to tell you, the person Judah never experienced any of that stuff. The person Judah died as the character we're studying today in this story. And yet his father gets it, and his father says, oh, but your children will be in a so much different place because of the journey you were willing to go on. Because who will Judah be? So, I, I think you guys are saying it. Somebody say it. The kingdom of Judah, the Messianic tribe. Not Judah. Judah will have to lay down his life. But because Judah lays down his life, Judah will be the father of the, the tribe. The Jews go back to this story and say, that's why. Have you ever wondered why Judah? Why is Judah the tribe of Messiah? Just because God, like, rolled the dice? It's like, and Judah, 12-sided die. (laughs) One 12-sided roll, bam. No, the Jews go back to this story because they say, you know what? What did she ask for? She asked for his cord, his signet ring, and his staff. What are those? What are those? Ruling items. That's what a king has. A scepter, a staff, a signet cord, and a signet ring. And they say, you're getting a glimpse of why he's a king. In this moment, she sends those items to him and says, do you recognize these? And he has to decide whether or not he's going to be a king or not. Not a worldly king, but a godly king. And because he makes the right decision and then lives, lives it out for the rest of his life, God says, bam, and his father sees it. Did you see it? Did you hear it? Did you hear it? The scepter will not depart from Judah. His, the story of his darkest moment, his dad pulls into his blessing in his dying, gasping breaths and says, that moment will live on in infamy. You chose to grab a hold of God's ruler. This is what it looks like. His dad sees it in him. let's, Let's bring this into sharper focus. This is where you might want to take some notes. There are five steps. How am I doing? Oh, I'm doing just fine. Hooray. Don't worry about that counter. Okay, well, fine. Don't tell me that. Um... Let's bring this into sharper focus. This has kind of been my lesson of, for this weird season. I don't until, like, sometimes God will give me, like, a little lesson. Whenever I talk about this, everybody's like, that was so helpful. So let's bring this into sharper focus by talking about the Jewish perspective on repentance. Like, what does true repentance look like? I want you to, I could have put these on slides, and Jesus was just like, eh, forget the slides. I'm pretty sure that's literally what Jesus did. He, like, rolled his eyes and kind of, like, flicked his wrist and said, forget the slides. So you can write these down in your own notebook. There are five 
steps in the Jewish worldview. It's just a Jewish worldview. It's not canon. It's not scripture. I don't know. I find it super helpful. Super, super, super duper helpful. Five steps to true repentance. The first step is this. You have to acknowledge that you've done something wrong. That's confession. It's a work of confession. Confess, as a, etymologically, the word means to fess with, to fess up to something with somebody else. So you're, 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 you're acknowledging in the presence of somebody else that you've done something wrong. There's an acknowledgement, I have done something wrong. What's interesting is that's usually the, the one step to repentance in the Christian world. Like, let, let, just let that one sit for a moment. The one step in the Christian world is usually, I did something wrong and now I want forgiveness. Which forgiveness is a completely separate issue, by the way. We're, I'm not preaching on forgiveness this morning. It's not at all my sermon. Forgiveness is whose job? God's and us between us and whatever. Like, forgiveness is something else. We're talking about repentance. We're not talking about forgiveness. The Christian world usually just lumps everything together. Like, confession, forgiveness. Bam. Right? First step. The second step is where it all starts to go crazy for us Christians. Because the second step is where I have to acknowledge what my wrong did to others. The second step is where I'm like, uh, first step, I've done something wrong. Second step, and this is how that wrong impacted you. My wrong had this impact on others. And this doesn't have to be big stuff. This can be like, like I'm learning how, how bad of a president of Impact Campus Ministries Steve introduced me as the president. That was a great bio, by the way. I don't know where you got that from, but that was great. <laughs> something that I wrote. It's probably on my website or something. I had a website creator, like, do all stuff. Um, I'm not a great president of Impact Campus Ministries. Thought I was. And then I started doing this exercise every year where once a year I'd be like, can you guys just give me honest feedback? I want my blind spots. And I don't need you to like give me two nice things and a negative thing. Like I don't need to be like three nice things and a critique. Like I don't know, that's not, that does not help. I need clarity. I'm in therapy to be emotionally helpful. I can take it. I need you guys to tell me what I don't see. They're blind spots because I don't see them. And so they started and they engaged. And that first year they were like, we don't know how that, we don't know. I don't know if I like this exercise. And then it went like, it went okay. And they're, they're trusting that exercise more and more. And so every year we have this beautiful conversation and I am learning, I am a hot mess as a leader. I'm a great podcast creator, I am not a fantastic leader. Um, part of it is all those narcissistic tendencies. Part of it is I think I'm this amazing communicator and my whole team is like, we get done with the meeting, my whole team is like, what are we supposed to do? <laughs> And I'm like, it was so clear, I told you. And they're like, right. <laughs> and I've had to come to grips with like, and you can just be like, okay, so Marty's not that great at identifying objectives. Yeah, but do you know the impact that has on my team over time? Especially once they've told me, and then I don't get better at it. Okay, so that was my sin last year. Like, I go through this process with my team, and I'm like, that was wrong, like you told me and I didn't get better last year at it. And here's what that did to you. It breaks trust between me and you. 
And it makes it to where the place that you go to work every day isn't like this unbelievably fulfilling place to work because it's unbelievably frustrating. You wonder if you're an idiot. I keep making you feel like an idiot. And it just keeps snowballing into this. Nobody wants to go to work and feel that way. Nobody does. Like, I don't care where you guys work. Like, I don't know where you guys work. There's got to be some factory around here or something. Something. I don't know. You guys work it somewhere. Somebody shout out where you work. Like a secular place. Cedar signing. Cedar signing. I don't even know what's being said right now. That's not helping, by the way. It's a hospital. I'm going to need you to translate, okay? Okay, good, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just like me. Nobody wants to go to work at the hospital and just be like, oh, oh. That's not... I, and I know that. Goodness, you work for Impact Campus Ministries, for Marty Solomon. It should be a joy. And yet here, you know what I'm, and so, so here's this thing that I do wrong. Here's the impact that it has, and I have to say that to them. I don't have to know that in my prayer journal. I have to say it to them. I see you, and this is what I've done wrong, and this is how it's impacted you. And I'm not just sorry Step number three, I have to do whatever I can to make reconciliation or reparations. Now, some things can't, you can't write a check. You can't whatever. You can't pay for therapy, by the way. Sometimes you ought to. Um, you, can, you can do things that you can do. You can't do what you can't do, but you can do what you can do. There's a wise saying for you. But you've got to make sure that you can do what, that you do what you can to make things right. It's Black History Month. I mean, part of the wacky tension we find ourselves in, as we always talk about racial justice, is it's very hard to navigate this third step. How do we make things right? How do we pursue reconciliation or reparations for things that were done that were very wrong? You see, this can happen on a personal level, and this can happen on a cultural level, and a societal level, and a systemic level. See, I find this conversation super helpful. This, and we all know this, by the way. This is why the, like, the celebrity apology were like, hmm. They, they even sounded like they were sorry, and I'm just not, hmm. Yeah. And then you're, you're left feeling like, well, am I not willing to forgive people? No, it's because that's only like the very first of many steps to re- true repentance. Does this person, does this celebrity, does this whatever, does this person have any sense of not only that they did something wrong, but actually how it impacted other people? Has this person done what they can to make things right? Step number four. Step number four. This is all in the Jew. They talk about, Jews talk about this every year at the high holidays because of Rosh Hashanah or Yom Teruah, the day of trumpets, followed by Yom Kippur. Like there's a whole process of forgiveness you're working through, right? So they, they go through this every single year. This is not like a side conversation I found on Google one day. Like, this is one of the main conversations that the Jewish community has every single year. You have to do this during the eight days of awe so that when you get to synagogue on Yom Kippur, you're ready to receive the mercy of God. You have made things right when you got there. So, so where are we at? First, thing, first step, acknowledge that you've done something wrong. Second step, you have, second step, acknowledge how that has actually impacted and hurt and disrupted shalom with other people, sometimes in huge ways. 
Third, do whatever you can to make reconciliation and reparation. Fourth, you need to acknowledge what you're going to do in the future to not do the same thing. That was a hard conversation with me and my team last year. What am I going to do to make sure I don't just repeat what happened last year? Because I repeated it two years now. I've got to stop that. I have to find a way to break that cycle. Because if I don't, I have not repented. Because step number five is changed behavior. And only when you get to step number five in the Jewish mind, and I would argue the biblical mind, has repentance actually happened. Confession might have happened. Really helpful other things might have happened. But repentance... See, Christian world always makes confession and repentance the same thing. They're not. Confession is just the beginning of repentance. But repentance goes all the way through this process to actually change behavior. And when I am a changed person, that's when I have repented. This is what John the Baptist says to the Pharisees when they come out to get baptized. Remember, it's not Christian baptism. So don't twist this. See, I know what room I'm standing in right now. We're restoration movement people. I'm from the Independent Christian Church, and we do the exact same thing with this. This is not Christian baptism. So this is not like, well, I shouldn't be getting baptized until I've changed my life. That is not how it works in Christian baptism. Do you understand me? Have we made that clear? Holy Spirit comes into your life. Holy Spirit changes who you are. Does that make sense? That's something completely different. In the Jewish world of repentance, you don't step into the waters of tevilat tshuva. Say tevilat tshuva. Tevilat tshuva. It's called a baptism of repentance. It is the last thing you do in the process of repentance. Once you have changed your behavior, then you take on the waters of baptism to tell the world around you, not Christian baptism, Jewish baptism, to tell the world around you, I am now walking correctly. This is what John the Baptist told the Pharisees. Why are you here? You get out of here. You go keep the fruit of repentance, then you come back and see me. Don't come in here acting like you're going to take Tevilat Tshuva. You go change your behavior, then you come back and take on the water. Again, nothing to do with Christian baptism, Jewish repentance. Two different things. Make sense? Pentecost is a different thing than John the Baptist, and that's really clear in Acts 17 and 18. Okay? John... Paul meets a guy named Apollos, and he's like, which baptism did you have? And he's like, John the Baptist, which is a pretty good baptism, right? Paul's like, not the one we're talking about. <laughs> we're talking about a Holy Spirit one, resurrection of Jesus one. They're different. They're different baptisms. Okay, okay. Okay, good. This is a really hard room to have that conversation with. Not just you guys, but me too. I'm an independent Christian church. Stone Camel folks are crazy about baptism. We talk about baptism, everybody starts to lose their mind. All right, deep breath. <sighs> okay. You see this with Judah's life. You see it in Judah's life. Judah is willing to admit. Judah's willing to admit that he's done something wrong. Judah absolutely acknowledges the impact that it's had on Tamar. Judah's like, no, no asterisk, no like, she's more righteous than I, but can we talk about the whole prostitution thing? Which, guys, just blows me away. There's no discussion about what she did wrong. Just, just, uh, this, this whole thing came about because I refused to act justly. And this, is, and this is what has happened in, like, through her, to her. 
does, does, he, does he make reconciliation and reparation? It's kind of not really in the story, but I would argue it's kind of there. He doesn't sleep with her again. Doesn't ever take advantage of her. Beyond that story, after acknowledging what's happened. Uh, step number four. Um, does he make a plan? Not that we're told, but it's pretty evident in the story. I, I think he goes back home. I think, I, I think it's evident in the story. He goes back to his family. He makes a plan. I don't need to be in these situations anymore. Apparently, I, I shouldn't be shearing my own sheep with my own flocks in Kazib. It's a bad situation for me. I'm going to go back to my family. I'm going to submit to a bunch of brothers and a father who don't respect me. Because that's probably better for me. That's my plan. And did he change his behavior? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. And because of that, the book of Genesis ends with one of the most glorious stories of restoration and redemption. And it will be Judah's descendants. It will be Judah's descendants. Which is one of the hard things for us as Western Americans to hear, because we want to be able to reap the fruit of our repentance. It's our kids and our grandkids that will reap the fruit of our repentance. And I think that's pretty great. And I got 12 minutes left and I'm done. Um, there's, there's something in there, and this isn't about, man, evangelicalism as a whole, all of us, Southern Baptist Convention, rise and fall of whatever hill. Yeah, I just wanted to say the name of the convention. This is all over. It's all over. Because this is something that if Christianity can capture this, we're going to be okay. We will not be okay if we keep insisting on like trying to survive and build and protect. and Because it was never us that was holding it up anyway. It was never us holding it up. It was always Jesus' gig. And Jesus does not need our help. Like, he's looking for partners. Like, don't get it twisted. But you know what I mean? Jesus is not depending on us to get it right. Jesus just needs us to be honest, vulnerable, and willing to, like, make all the right decisions and respond in all the right ways. And, And we'll be okay. And you know who will benefit from that? All those young people that I run around here talking about are a big deal. By the way, our young people have been right. This isn't part of my sermon material, but I still have 10 minutes, so now I'm just... (laughs) Now I'm just vamping. But our young people have been right about all this. And I I said they were two years ago. So what do we do now? That'll that'll be the great challenge. How we respond to all those moments will be the great challenge. And it will will define who we are for generations to come. Good news is we don't need a scepter and a ruler's staff because Jesus already took care of all that. 
Lion of Judah is already on the scene. And he can catch us. I promise he can catch us. So we got that stupid book we're talking about. And part of my heart behind that book is we, we say we trust Jesus in the Bible. And my book is partially a, a call out. Do we? Do we actually trust Jesus in the Bible? Or do we trust our doctrine and our dogma? Do we trust our traditions? Do we trust our approaches? Do we trust our methods? Or, or do we trust Jesus in the Bible? Because if we trust Jesus in the Bible, we're going to be okay. Like, we can, toss, we, can, we can ask a million questions about a million things and throw a million stuff out the window because it was never about any of that stuff anyway. It was about Jesus in the Bible. We'll be okay. I mean, I mean, maybe. It's up to us. It's up to us. It's up to all of us. But we will, we will be okay. Because the gospel is about taking screwed up, broken things and putting it back together over and over and over again in a way that people go, well, that's just Jesus. That's just God. There's nothing else that could explain that. Anyway. Uh, we're going to go, we're going to have a time of the Lord's Supper. Uh, apparently you do that here. <laughs> Wink. Well, you're going to have some bread and some juice, and it's going to be a great time to reflect on Jesus went and did this for us. He's our model. Like Jesus laid down his life. Asks us to remember this every single time we got together, and so we have bread and we have juice, and we remind ourselves of like, all we're doing is following Jesus where he went. There's this passage in the scripture where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And we use that passage in a lot of like really weird ways. Like we use that passage over and over again. We want to say, like Christianity, our brand of Christianity is the only way you'll ever get to heaven. Feels like a weird conversation that Jesus would be having with Thomas. Right? Or Philip or whoever. I can't even remember who he's talking to right now. I need to know my text better. But what Jesus is, what, what it feels like Jesus is saying is he's talking about how he's going to the cross, right? And he's like, I'm going to prepare a place for you guys, and I'm going to do all this stuff, and the kingdom's going to come, and a counselor and a Holy Spirit, and I'm going. And, and one of the disciples is like, but we don't even know the way. Like, what are you talking about? What's the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. And I think we make that some abstract theological point when what I think Jesus is saying is I'm headed to the cross, folks. Follow me. That's the way. That's the way the kingdom comes. Not this is the only way you get to heaven and no, nobody else is ever going to be saved, but follow me because I'm going to show you how to bring the kingdom crashing into earth. We're going to do that by laying our life down. And you know what they're going to do? They're going to do it. Now I'm almost positive it was Philip because Philip does. Philip will be crucified outside the city gates of Heropolis because he got it. He might have had a whole bunch of questions that night, but he watched his rabbi, and when the moment came, he followed his rabbi straight to giving up his own life. I, I take all my students there in Turkey. It's one of the most moving sites we ever go to. That's what Jesus invites us. Right here in Redondo Beach, California. <laughs> I'm never sure what to call anything. I remember showing up last year. I just killed the mood. But I, 
I remember showing up last year to Orange County, and I came out on stage, and I'm like, good evening, Los Angeles. I've never been booed by 800 people, but that was... <laughs> everybody booed me, and I'm like, what is going on? And they're like, we're Orange County. So I'm always nervous to call you guys Los Angeles. Redondo Beach. <laughs> Go, go bring some gospel. Go bring some repentance. Go bring some, lay down your life for the people of Redondo Beach because they need to see Jesus so clearly. And, and, your, and your kids and your grandkids will thank you for it. It might be your own spiritual tamarisk tree for anybody that's been there in the podcast. You plant those things for everybody else. Let's do that with the decisions we make. Let's pray. God, we come to this table with bread and juice, knowing that you, you modeled a way for us. You paved a way for us. You walked away. You cut a path. And that led straight to and through the cross. And we can say through the cross because the cross isn't where the story ended. It went right to a tomb that was empty two days later. So, God, we're... But it's hard to trust that crucifixion can lead to resurrection. It's really hard to trust that uh, that honesty can lead to freedom. We're fearful, insecure people. You know that. You, you know that about us. You deeply know that about us. So we want to pray, prayerfully give our lives and our hearts to you, that you would protect our heart because when we try to protect our heart, we are dangerous people. Jesus went to a garden and he kneeled in prayer that night that he had bread and juice and he had fear and insecurity because he was just like us. But he also chose to see something better. For the joy set before him, he triumphed over fear and security. He triumphed over death, even death on a cross. <laughs> he mocked death on a cross because he saw the beauty of redemption. And in that, he modeled a way for us. It is very difficult, God. We come to you admitting how difficult it is for us to walk that path. But we know that you sent us help, the Holy Spirit. And we know that you sent us a community of people to catch us when we fall and take care of us when we respond appropriately. So God... We love you, and we just want to do our best loving you. So, Jesus, help us. We need it. Pray all this in the resurrected name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to the South Bay Church Podcast. For other sermons, videos, upcoming events, and more about our church, please visit southbaychurch.us. 